Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, tell me about this, uh, what is it, this new safe driver thing? That, what, what are you doing? So they track your driving and then see if you're eligible for insurance discounts. I see. Well, okay. And um, <laughs> I don't, I, I really don't understand how it works. And the more that it's tracking me, the less I understand because it tracked you driving the other day when you went to Best Buy. So it's not your phone. It's, it can't be my phone. I was here the whole and time. There was nothing to plug in no. to the car. No, I don't know. How does this work? I don't know because it's... it tracked me the other day when I was in an Uber. So I had to tell the app, I was like, well, this wasn't me driving because there were a lot of hard stops and dramatic uh, speed increases. And right. I was like, well, that's not me. Mm. And so, they believed you? They did. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But overall, I have a driving score of 4.9. Well, so <laughs> that's excellent, by the way. Yeah. She got really concerned when I came back from driving that it was going to affect her score. She checks it daily like it's like a leaderboard in a golf tournament. I don't always like being judged, but sometimes I like winning. <laughs> it's a competition for you. <laughs> well, I would love to know how that works because it's a little scary, really, when you think about it. Well, don't look at me because I don't know. Okay. I just know that it's excellent. 4.9. Mm-hmm. 4.9. Yeah. You win. Thank you. <laughs> I got a horror story for you. Ooh. And it is horrific. The best horror stories are the ones that are true. Yeah. And this is very true. It was Monday, July 30th, 1945. It was a very bad day for the crew of the USS Indianapolis. It was a battleship in the South Pacific during World War II. It had just completed a very important mission of delivering components of the... Uh, very first working atomic bomb to a naval base on a Pacific island called Tinian. This was just one week before the atomic bomb leveled Hiroshima. It had left Guam on July 29th. Guam! 
That's w- the that's what I was trying to think of the other day. Guam. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I have, oh my goodness. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, I wasn't talking to you. Oh, okay. I was just yeah. I was trying to come up with Guam. So Guam, um, the destination of the in Indianapolis was to join the USS Idaho in the Philippines in preparation for the Japanese invasion. The seas were kicking up five to six foot waves. And the battleship was traveling at about 17 knots, regardless. That's pretty fast, I guess. Okay. It had been a quiet day at sea, and as the sundown approached, the crew was relatively chill. They understood that a potentially bloody invasion was at hand, but they were doing their best to relax. Okay. Some of them were reading, some were playing cards. As the evening progressed, most of the crew had settled down for the night. Just after midnight, a Japanese torpedo tore through the Indianapolis on the starboard bow. Mm. This was a huge issue because that's where the ship stored their fuel. 3,500 gallons of oil spilled into the water and immediately caught on fire. Flames shot in the air over 100 feet. As the crew was frantically dealing with this, a second torpedo struck midship, causing the fuel tanks and powder magazines to explode. It was pretty bad. This created a chain reaction that ultimately ripped the Indianapolis in two. And because it was traveling at a pretty good rate, it quickly filled with water. In fact, in just seconds, it was filled with water. It only took 12 minutes for this entire battleship to completely sink. Oof. There were 1,196 crew members on board the battleship. 900 of them miraculously survived all the explosions and were able to escape into the water wow. alive. But of course, with 3,500 gallons of oil on fire. Yuck. Oh, I hate that idea. The entire It seemed to them like the entire Pacific was ablaze. One survivor... Seaman First Class Lyle Umenhofer said, quote, When I looked down at myself, I noticed I was covered in this oil. And the first instinct is to get away from it, you know, because if it catches on fire, you're really in trouble. The first impulse is to swim away. So I swam away, and this was a little after midnight when it happened. And then by probably 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, I was still swimming. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a life jacket, so I was swimming from midnight to 5.30 in the morning. And as the sun came up on the morning of July 30th, the ship, of course, completely gone. And all that could be seen were pieces of wreckage floating in the water, as well as dozens and dozens of corpses. Many of the survivors were dealing with severe burns. Some had severed limbs. Um, excuse me? Hi, I was told this was a ghost story, and instead it's just really depressing. No, I said it was a horror story. Oh. There's a difference. Oh, I was not prepared for the right thing. Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> There were not enough life rafts, so many of the wounded sailors were just floating in the ocean. I mean, because it happened so fast, a vast majority of the crew didn't have time to put on life vests. Uh, they resorted to taking the life vests off their dead crew members that were floating nearby. Mm. They tried to organize by forming several small groups and one large group of about 300 sailors, and they all huddled together in these groups in the water, most of them with no life vests, some of them in in rafts, waiting for assistance. The men, of course, were exhausted, and then thirst began to set in. But then, as horrific as that is, the real horror struck. What? 
Because of the huge explosions, the noise, the sinking of the ship, the spilled oil, and of course all of the blood in the water, sharks began to circle. And not just a few, but over a hundred. And not just any sharks. These were the aggressive oceanic white tip sharks. The first targets of the sharks were the floating corpses, and they made very quick work of them. While the corpses were being devoured, that of course attracted more sharks. And then they began to target the sailors, struggling to survive on the surface of the Pacific. You would think maybe the oil would keep them from being eaten. Yeah, apparently it didn't make a difference. Survivors tell a horrifying tale of men scattered over an area of about 100 square meters being attacked by over 100 sharks relentlessly. The sailors knew that the sharks were attracted to the blood, so if they were nearby somebody that was bleeding or if they were near a corpse, they would attempt to swim away to try to prevent being attacked. Mm. One survivor, Eugene Morgan, in an interview with History, said, quote, all the time the sharks never let up. We had a cargo net that had styrofoam things attached to it to keep it afloat. There were about 15 sailors on this, and suddenly 10 sharks hit it, and there was nothing left. This went on and on and on. I can't imagine how traumatic that would be. As a survivor, to oh my God, see I know. that happening to your friends over and over again. Most of the sailors, of course, were frozen with fear. And they were suffering from thirst and many of them were wounded and there was no food because when they started to open up food, their rations, which consisted of spam, the smell attracted more sharks. No. So they had to throw their rations away. Signalman third class Paul McGinnis said in that same history interview, quote, While I was completely coherent, this was my thought. Keep struggling and stay alive. It was very miserable because the sun burning the skin, one could not escape it. It was like having your head in a hole in the middle of a mirror with all of the sunlight being reflected and burning your face so hard. It was miserable like hell. You could not wait for the sun to go down. When the sun did go down, it was a relief. (sighs) Then... I wish this was ghosts. Then... It would get cold and you would start to shiver and you couldn't wait for the sun to come back up again. Hours turned into days and still no sight of rescue vessels. Again, remember, many of these guys, wounded, burned, sunburned, trying to avoid being eaten by over a hundred sharks. They have no life vests. They're swimming on their own. There was nothing to hang on to in many cases. The heat and the thirst caused many to start to hallucinate. And as you can imagine... They were losing hope. Yeah. Some not being able to stand the thirst anymore began to drink the seawater, and this caused salt poisoning, and the sailors soon started to descend into madness. Some started to attack their fellow crewmen. They would come at them with swollen lips and tongues and foaming mouths. At times, they were an even greater threat to the crew members than the sharks were that were circling just below them. How long is this going on for? It went on for four days. The madness of some of the men accelerated to the point where they were attacking each other with knives and killing each other. And, and because some drank so much seawater and they were hallucinating, a man named Granville Crane, he was a machinist's mate, said, they started seeing things. They'd say things like, the Indy is down below and, and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley. And they would swim down and a shark would eat them. You had to watch sharks eating your comrades. The nightmare, as I mentioned, lasted four days. 
And there was no reason for it to last this long because signal distresses had gone out. Three different radio stations of the U.S. Navy had received news of the disaster as it happened, but none of them bothered to transmit it to their superiors. No, what? The commander of station number one was drunk. Another commander at a different station had ordered his men to not disturb him, and they didn't. The third commander thought it was a Japanese hoax and ignored it. It was 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday, four days later, that a Navy patrol plane spotted the survivors and radioed for assistance. Within hours, a seaplane arrived, and they dropped rafts and survival kits to the sailors. And shortly after midnight, they were finally pulled from the Pacific by the USS Doyle. Out of the 1,156 crew members, only 317 managed to survive. Many died of thirst, fatigue, insanity. It's been estimated, though, that at least 150 of them were killed by sharks. It's been called the worst shark attack of all time. It's also the most shocking maritime disaster in the history of the U.S. Navy. It was a very bad day. Actually, four very, very bad days. My source information, earthlymissionhistory.com and CBS News. Yeah. Um, I hated that. I'm sure you did. Yeah. 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 Just be grateful that no matter how bad your day gets, <laughs> you're not uh, missing an arm, partially burned, hallucinating with no life jacket and right. avoiding sharks. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Over the years, the Super Bowl has come a long, long way. Did you know during the second half in Super Bowl One, the kickoff had to be done twice? Because NBC didn't cut back from commercials in time to catch the first one on camera. Hey, Dale sent us an email about uh, Box 470 and uh, was talking about the history and strange connections that humans have had with marijuana over over the uh, millennia. Yeah, that seemed to get a lot of feedback. It did, yeah. And I offhandedly said something. I, I talked about how the English, the British, introduced it into the U.S. at Jamestown. And I made some kind of reference that they had all disappeared and they probably just smoked some weed and wandered into the wilderness. And um, he said, you're confusing Jamestown with the lost colony of Roanoke Island. I know that. <laughs> I know that. I don't know why I said that. I don't uh-huh. It's funny because I didn't catch it either. And of course, it's Roanoke. He says, Jamestown is only about 20 miles from my home. Uh, when it was originally founded, it was referred to as the Great Malaria Swamp. Well, oh, there wow. you have it. Thanks, Dale. That, uh, the story of Roanoke always reminds me of that movie that I watched, the creepy movie. You were visiting family in northern Maine one day, and so I watched a spooky movie by myself. Why can't I think of it? Was, oh, Yellow Brick Road. Oh, yeah. You, you called me up. You were all freaked out. I was like, <laughs> and it was same kind of idea, like this uh, historic town where all the people had just disappeared. And then years later, a documentary filmmaker and a crew went out to like explore it and the, the creepiness that followed. Mm-hmm. And I still like I would like to rewatch it to see if it creeps me out the same way that it did the first time. But I'd like you to be here. Thank okay. you. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. So I'd be, I'd yeah. be okay. glad to, to hang out with you for that. Thank you. Well, I'd be glad to hang out with you. Well, I do hang out with you all the time. You do. Yeah. Yep. And I'm glad. <laughs> Thanks. We got a message from uh, Fish M04 on Instagram, from Emily on Instagram, Tanya on Instagram, Sam on Instagram, a TikTok tag from Texas Rules, a tag on Twitter from My Patronus is a Dire Wolf. <laughs> All about the overturned truck of dildos. And I have to say, thanks, you guys, for thinking of us. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Where did that happen? It was in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And it was a tractor-trailer accident. Uh, Dildos spilled all over the road. Wow. The last 48 hours has been nonstop dildo tags. So We we applaud that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, encourage it (laughs) at almost any cost. 
<clears throat> and Kate emailed us at curator at the box of oddities.com. Kat and Jethro, I'm working my way through the box of oddities from the beginning. I'm currently listening to box 178. You were just reading off strange ICD 10 codes. And one of them was injured while knitting or crocheting. That's me. <gasps> I pinched the nerves in my right arm working on a large knitting project with bad posture. I was advised by my doctor to lay off the knitting. <laughs> Six months of physical therapy and a cortisone shot later, I can knit in short sessions again. Hey. Congratulations, Kate. Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. Kate. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I've officially run out of things to say in these liners. Ooh, ooh, I just thought of another one for next time. This is The Box of Oddities. As we've discussed on multiple occasions, coal mining was incredibly dangerous work. Mm. During the industrial coal boom between 1880 and 1923, more than 70,000 miners. Coal boom? Coal boom. From the parlor to the pool room? <laughs> I'm. This is serious. I'm sorry. 70,000 miners died. Oh, okay. I, did you get to that part yet? I was in the midst of the okay, sentence. I'm sorry about that. That's fine. All right. Gosh. Collapsing mines, suffocation, gas poisoning, explosions, so on and so forth. It wasn't uh, a great situation. And oftentimes, in certain places, when a miner would die... In an accident, his shoes or boots were placed on the household table as a sign of respect. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Over time, it became seen as tempting fate or simply bad taste to put shoes on a table otherwise, and thus a superstition was born. Okay. All right. In a slightly different origin story, it's also said that the mental imagery of a convict's swinging feet 
on a hangman's gallows. When the convict was hanging, uh, their feet would scrape against the wooden platform. And of course, the gallows floor was usually raised up on legs, so it looked like a table. And there you can see the association, shoes on a table. Gotcha. Again, bad, bad association. During harder times, like the Great Depression, new shoes were a rarity. But when it was affordable, new shoes were sometimes purchased for a recently deceased family member as a sign of, you know, love and respect. And uh, they would bury them in new shoes. Oh, which I, that's I just, sweet. It's so sweet. But again, oftentimes those shoes were placed on a table in preparation for the burying and and so okay. someone else putting shoes on a table was seen as a bad omen. Was it a, an issue with people digging up dead miners and stealing their new shoes? I don't think so. That's but way where, to get creative. That's where my mind went yeah, immediately. Yeah, I was going to say. Grave that's robbing. A, yeah. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Either way, shoes on a table associated with death, plus it's gross. And there <laughs> is a superstition that uh, bad luck just comes to a person who places shoes on a table. It's not always that death is on the way. Some people just think it's bad luck in general. Okay. But it's thought that you can undo bad luck by spitting on the soles of the shoes or knocking on the underside of the table when you remove the shoes from the table. Okay, who came up with that? What's the origin of that? Don't know. Interesting. But it's only the person who placed the shoes on the table that's able to take them off and undo the bad luck. Hmm. It's a lot of rules. It is. And it's going to be tough if the person who placed them on the table is the one who died. Interesting thought. In Italy, there's a superstition that shoes on the bed rather than on a table, will bring death to the family. In a similar vein, the Chinese practice of feng shui warns against placing shoes high off the floor because walking underneath shoes implies that you are able to be walked on. You know, I don't understand any kind of scientific principle behind that. I don't recognize any scientific principle behind that, but it feels right. Not storing shoes up high? Yeah, plus they don't smell good. Yeah, keep them away from your nose. Right, right. Fair enough. In theater circles, the act of putting shoes on a table is considered to be very unlucky. It's thought that having them on a table would make them more likely for the person donning them to put them on the wrong feet. Hmm. And putting shoes on the wrong feet is incredibly bad luck. It says that that would lead to missteps. And you can see how a misstep in a theater production would be a big deal. Oh, yeah. Because choreography and all that business. But it's not just putting shoes on the wrong feet that's considered bad luck. And uncomfortable. Mm. The superstition extends to which shoe you put on first. When getting dressed in the morning, you wanted to make sure that you were doing everything to appease the gods. This is according to Pythagoras. You don't want to raise their wrath. So... When stretching forth your feet to have your sandals put on, first extend your right foot. Yes, I've been doing it right. I can't put my left shoe on first. You can't? No, I I can't remember a time when I ever did. It was, it's always the right shoe. Interesting, because my left shoe always goes on first. Oh my goodness, we're perfect for each other. (laughs) 
we're just different enough. <laughs> Do you put on both socks first and then your shoes or yes. a, a sock and a shoe and a sock and a shoe? Sock, sock, shoe, shoe, because I put my socks on far before I put my shoes on. Socks go on in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Shoes mm-hmm. go on okay. at the entryway. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the same uh, strategy as you do or or reasoning for it. But yes, that's what I do as well. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Pythagoras insisted that his followers do this as well for good fortune. Emperor Augustus, though, he was very superstitious and he always put his left shoe on before his right. But there was one day where he faced a mutiny. There was some disagreement about pay, I guess, Mm. and his soldiers were trying to overthrow him. He was almost murdered. He narrowly escaped, and from that day forth, he vowed never to put his left shoe on first again. Well, that's just wise. That's wisdom. Romans also believed that it was a good idea to spit into the right shoe before putting it on. Again, you want to put that one on before the left one. Sure, yeah. It's thought that ancient Romans believed that the left side represented the feminine and giving preferential treatment to your left side or the feminine side would affect your day. No word on if that only applied to dudes. One should put on the right shoe first, but not tie it yet. Then put on the left shoe and tie it. Then proceed to tie the right one. This is according to the Code of Jewish Law. Wow. In Kabbalah, the stronger side, the right for right-handed people, the left for lefties, represents giving. And the weaker side symbolizes holding back. And this is to teach us that our power of giving should be more dominant than our power of holding back. Oh, I I love that. Yeah. The idea is to have a higher measure of kindness than discipline. Okay. I like it, though. I mean, up until now, put my socks on and then right shoe, tie it, left shoe, tie it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that. I'm you gonna, are? I'm going uh, to put on my right shoe, put on my left shoe, tie my left shoe, and then tie my right shoe. I think that you're going to have a problem there because I've never seen you untie your shoes. Well, oftentimes I don't. That's, <laughs> that's true. I just slip them on. I've ruined many a back of shoes. Now, sometimes shoe superstitions were about ladies getting it. And you know Hmm. what I say is let ladies get it. Of course. French brides in the 17th century would, for instance, put a coin in their shoes when they got married. And that would prevent any witches from making their husbands impotent. (laughs) Okay. Cool. It's also said that tying shoes to a bridal carriage would bring luck. And you see it sometimes still, shoes being tied to the back of a car of newlyweds. It's true. In Transylvania, that practice was to increase fertility. English girls would be encouraged to do a charm on St. Agnes Day. Take dew-sprinkled sprigs of rosemary and thyme, put one in each shoe, place them on opposing sides of the bed, and recite a rhyme imploring St. Agnes to make a future husband appear in your night's dream. Hmm. According to the Folklore of Love and Courtship, 1970, on your birthday when you go to bed at night, take off your shoe or slipper, you stand with your back to the door, and throw the shoe over your head, and then you go to bed. And you don't (laughs) look at the shoe until the morning. But when you get up in the morning, you observe it, and if the toe points to the door, you will be a bride before the end of the year. What if you have to get up to pee? 
in the middle of the night. Close your eyes. Yeah, but what if you open the door and you move it? That's going to taint the results. It contaminates the experiment. Well, this is just on your birthday, so it's one day out of the year. So hold your liquids (laughs) on your birthday. I was going to say just... Keep your door open, but whatever. Shoes have also kept the superstitious safe. It was thought that when constructing a building, you should conceal a personal item in the structure, and that would act as a magical charm to protect the occupants against evil influences. And a shoe was a very popular choice for that. The idea is that the shoe is the only garment that retains the shape of the wearer, therefore their personality. And so it would attract the evil presence rather than the person being attacked. The evil presence apparently not real bright and would be attracted to your shoe because it looks like your foot. Uh huh. You know, I'm familiar with this practice. Uh, I used to watch the show on HGTV, and this was 20 years ago. I've never seen it anywhere else. Uh, it's not like in reruns. It's not on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It was called If Walls Could Talk. Oh. And it was about people that would go in and rehab old structures, old homes. And, and I'm talking like colonial era houses. Mm hmm. And oftentimes, they would find shoes in the wall. Right. Do you remember that episode where we talked about all the dead animals in the wall? Yeah, I do remember that very well. Yeah, yeah. That would make me move. I think I'd rather have shoes. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you were just, like, remodeling your house and you opened up a wall and, oh, there's a... Classic pair of chucks. A beautiful pair of Louboutins. (laughs) (laughs) It's said that in England, throwing a shoe at someone when they're setting out on a journey is bringing them good luck. So the fathers of Anglo-Saxon brides would give one of her shoes to her new groom, and he would then tap her on the forehead with her own shoe, and mm. that was that was good luck. But the tradition evolved over time to the father throwing the shoe at the groom, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is a much more lively tradition. And as the couple's departing from the church and on their journey together, that's when you would huck the shoe at them. Shoe hucking. Shoe superstitions have also helped us in history decide how to move forward. Literally. In the Highlands, there's a form of divination that was practiced on Halloween. You take a shoe by the tip and you throw it over your house. (laughs) And the direction that the shoe points in when it lands on the ground is the direction that you are destined to travel. Interesting. I love it. Oh, my God. It's like throwing a dart at a map. With footwear. And it involves more dexterity. It certainly does. But if it lands sole up, that's actually very unlucky. Mm. So I think if you just opt out of the practice, there's no chance of being unlucky. But then you have no idea where you're going. And there's a tradition in Hawaii that says to never wear your shoes in the house because it brings the devil into your house. That's just cut and dry. Mm. Don't do it. Devil. I'm just concerned with everyday grime. If you put shoes on your table, it might be unlucky because now everyone has malaria. You know, (laughs) it's like (laughs) you don't put gross things on the place where you eat. Yeah, that's true. Uh, You and I are very good about that. As soon as we come in, we take our shoes off. We just automatically do that when we we visit people. Mm. It's a sign of respect, I think. We went one place not long ago, and we had never been to this person's house before. It was a birthday party for a kid. We started to take our shoes off. Oh, don't worry about it. And immediately I thought, 
You are not my kind of people. I was so uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah, filthy people. That's rude. They're filthy. Oh, now he's just being mean. <laughs> Can you tell I just watched a Jim Gaffigan Jim special? Gaffigan. That's <laughs> such a Jim Gaffigan moment. <laughs> I got most of my information from Feet, Shoes, and Superstition blog, Chabad.org, FolkloreThursday.com, and Bustle. I love, love, love it. I had no idea that I could possibly do an entire episode on shoe superstitions. You've done an entire episode on forks. So, yeah. you know, you're resourceful. Thank I you. can always count on you. But there are, there's even more. I didn't even talk about all the shoe superstitions. There might be a shoe superstitions part two. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll mark that on our calendars. I did an episode on calendars too. Yeah, you did. That's, yeah. I was waiting to see if you'd pick up on that. Okay. So uh, we are receiving quite a few Halloween submissions, Halloween story yes. submissions for the Halloween special. That is the uh, it's our fifth Halloween special where you tell your story mm. about something strange or weird or spooky that's happened to you or someone you know if you witnessed it. And then email it to curator at theboxofoddities.com. And we appreciate, you know, the written uh, stories. Yeah, but they're it, fine. But it's much, much, much better and a better chance you're going to end up on the uh, on the special if you record it on your phone and then just email us the mp3 we want your voice your words telling us what happened curator at theboxofoddities.com we'll see you next time until then keep flying that freak flag and fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts